The text this morning is from 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. These are the words of God. And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do, the heads of them were two hundred, and all their brethren were at their commandment. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. I pray that your spirit would be present here among us, applying this word to our lives, to our particular circumstances and our situation. Father, I pray that we'd go out prepared to be more obedient. I pray that you'd work this great grace in us, because we ask in Jesus' name, and amen. Before turning to the text, I want to thank Pastor Burrow and for your elders for the very kind invitation to address you this morning. It's a great privilege, so thank you. You've no doubt noticed that we live in tumultuous times. Many of you have learned that you should no longer say things like, now I've seen everything, because that sentiment always seems to be refuted by events that unfold by the middle of next week. First, it was clown world, and then it was creepy clown world, and now we appear to be on the brink of creepy clowns with chainsaws world. Things are getting really bad, and you're wondering, what are, how did this happen? Why did the bottom fall out all of a sudden? What, what, who, was, who was supposed to watch out for this? In our time, we have seen a number of transitions in which a pattern of escalation can be readily seen. We began with certain cultural issues of a various serious nature. There was the sexual revolution in the 60s, followed by its bloody reckoning in the 1973 Roe decision, which, thanks to God, was struck down just recently in the Dobbs decision, but damage done, millions dead. A few years later, after 73, in a speech at the 1992 Republican National Convention, Pat Buchanan coined the phrase, culture wars. And now, according to certain insightful observers that I believe are seeing something accurately, we are on the threshold of an attempted cultural revolution, similar in outlook to what Mao launched in China in 1966. First, cultural tensions, cultural battles, cultural issues like abortion and sexual license, and then culture wars, and now a cultural revolution. So how are we as Christians to understand and respond to all of this? I think our text is going to give us direction. This text from 1 Chronicles 12 is part of the record of how David consolidated his reign over all of Israel during the time when the house of Saul was being combined with the house of David. You'll recall that there was um, tension. Saul tried, had tried to kill David. David was on the run. After, um, after Saul died in battle against the Philistines, and then after Saul's son was assassinated, there was tension, and Jesus uh, and, and David was established as the king at Hebron over the southern portion of the kingdom. And Ishbosheth, the Saul's son, had been the king of the north. And then after he was assassinated, there were negotiations and a lot of tense moments where they were working on consolidating the two halves of the kingdom under David. And this text is talking about these two halves coming together at that time. So David's tribe, the tribe of Judah, brought in 6,800 warriors, which you can see in verse 24. Simeon, which was a tribe to the north, contributed 7,100 men, verse 25. 
The Levites are mentioned in verses 26 through 28, and perhaps some warriors, and with others who are no doubt priests, because the priests and the Levitical workers had to come from the tribe of Levi. Ephraim and Manasseh, you remember, were the two sons of Joseph. So Ephraim and Manasseh together are basically the tribe of Joseph. Ephraim brought in a large number, 20,800. And the half-tribe of Manasseh did the same, bringing in 18,000. But the really striking thing about this passage is what is said about the wise men of Issachar. There were only 200 of them. So you have thousands, and then you have tens of thousands, and armed men of war, great warriors, and they're all coming together under David. And then the, the historian here reckons there's 200 men from Issachar. Verse 34, and their brothers with them were under their authority. The thing that these men of Issachar contributed and ranked up, and and their contribution ranked up here with tens of thousands of skilled warriors was the fact that they understood the situation and they had a plan. What does the text say? It says they were men that understood the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. These were men who understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. They, they saw the situation, they read the situation correctly, and they had a plan. They were oriented and they were ready for action. They were oriented and they were ready for action. This true knowledge that they had was priceless. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge in Proverbs 1.7. These were men who feared God, they understood his word, they were submitted to it, and they understood how it applied. Now this is the tricky, this is the uh, tricky uh, aspect of all of this. In his book on preaching, the great expositor John Stott said that a preacher stands between two worlds. A preacher stands between two worlds, which is also the title of his book on preaching, Between Two Worlds. The preacher must understand the text. This is the first thing. The preacher must understand the text and be able to state faithfully what that text is saying, what is objectively laid down in the Word of God. Because it is the Word of God, the meaning of it does not twist or shift from age to age. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. That's in Psalm 12, verse 6. The silver is always pure, and this silver is always silver. The Word of God does not change. The Word of God doesn't shift. It doesn't. So my task as a minister is to talk to you about what the text says, and this text would have been what it says whether you or I had ever been born. It doesn't change. It doesn't change from culture to culture. It doesn't change on, according to the day of the week. It doesn't ac- change according to humanistic fads or fashions. It does not change change. God is without variation or shadow due to change, and his word is absolute. His word doesn't shift with our opinions. His word doesn't shift with our fashions. So the word of God is constant. But a preacher must also be a son of Issachar. He must be able to exegete the times. It's not just exegete the word. He must be able to exegete the times so that he can faithfully apply the constant scriptures to an inconstant world. The the scriptures are constant, and the world is not constant, and the preacher's task is to bring the scriptures to bear on this world that's running all over the place, trying to get away from God. So the preacher's task is to bring the constant word to the inconstant world. The challenge in exegeting the times is that men are slippery and confused, 
and deceptive and wicked and constantly changing. Constantly, they can't make up their minds. Right? You can't tell me I can't be homosexual. I was born this way. And you have to understand that sexuality is fluid. Oh, oh. And then if you go if you go after the fluidity argument, they're going to be back to born this way. All right. It, man is like Reuben, unstable as water, and because he's a sinner, it is always dirty water. So the task of the preacher is to bring the fixed word of God to an unstable world. Now, there are secular thinkers who understand the times pretty well. I would assume that a number of you follow podcasts of various secular thinkers or uh, Jewish believers or people who are dismayed like you and I are at what's uh, the disintegration we see all around us. So there are secular thinkers or people who aren't Christians but who are religious who understand the times pretty well, but because they don't have the word, they are lost in the chaos. Because they don't have Christ, there is no real answer. They have no answers. They can say, this is, that's a mess, and they can say, that's a mess, and that's a mess, and you're thinking, what's the solution? Well, they don't have a solution. Their, their solution is, let's try to be better, guys. Let's, but what's your standard? What, do, what are you appealing to? How, and where do we get the, the power to deal with this sin that has us by the throat? They're lost in the chaos. They don't have Christ, and because, and however accurately they might see the chaos. And then, but on the other hand, there are biblical preachers who understand the text of Scripture well, but who have no idea how it ever might apply to anything. All right, they can write commentaries. They can tell you that this is what this is where Paul was when he wrote that, and here's the dating of Second Samuel, and this is what you know. They can they can take it all apart. They can they understand the Scripture, the text of Scripture well, but they don't see how it plugs in. They don't see how it applies. They're like an arms expert who knows how to assemble and disassemble a rocket launcher in a factory somewhere, but who has no idea of what someone might do with it on a field of battle. Right? They can take the weapon apart. They can polish the sword. They can build you a rocket launcher. They can fix the rocket launcher. They can, but they don't have any understanding of battle. But the, the men of Issachar are supposed to stand between these two worlds. They're supposed to see what the problem is, and they're supposed to see what the Word of God says, and they have to bring these two things together. And if they don't bring these two things together, then what good is it? Why doesn't God just take us all to heaven now? Because he gave us a mission. The mission is in the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, disciple the nations baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, that's a tall order. That's a tall order. Think about it. And, and think about the circumstance when Jesus gave the disciples that tall order. There they are, uh, the twelve and maybe some others, standing on the Mount of Olives before Jesus descend, ascends into heaven. And he says, okay, men, here's the plan. Conquer the world on three. No, no. He said, not on three. Go back into Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to come on you. I'm going away. And these fishermen are looking around at each other. He's saying, All, uh, is he serious? Is he serious? Conquer the world? Really? But here's the thing. They did it. They did it. 
All right, they fanned out across the Roman Empire. It took three centuries, but the Roman Empire came down. The first Christendom was established. There are today millions of Christians all over the world. It's been 2,000 years, which, cosmically speaking, wasn't that long ago. And we are here on the other side of the world, worshiping God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, because they were faithful to that mission. So... They knew how to apply it. They took the the constant word of their Lord, and they applied it to the world they were in, and they fanned out preaching the gospel, planting churches everywhere they went. So, the sons of Issachar are not like the people who see the problem but have no solution, and they're not like those who have shelves full of solutions and no idea of where to apply the solutions, no idea how to bring these solutions to bear on the problem. So the sons of Issachar are not like this. They understood the times, first thing, and they knew how the word of God should inform the plan of action. Feet on the word and eyes on the times. That's the, that's the posture. Feet on the word, standing on the word, and eyes on the times. That was their strength, and that was their stand. In these tumultuous times, we need to remember the stages that our ostensible evangelical leaders have led it, not being sons of Issachar, have brought us through. Number one, there will not be any need to fight. America's fine. There's not going to be any need to fight. Number two, there may come a time when it's necessary to fight. There may come a time when it's necessary. Number three, it's too early to fight. Hold your horses. Hold, hold, you know, just don't be rash. Don't be hasty. Number four, it's too late to fight. Too late to fight. We have to come to grips with the fact that this is a post-Christian era. In other words, their plan, caution, 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 was simply a plan to surrender slowly. But slow surrender is not what Jesus told us to do. That's not the charge. That's not the commission. So why, why do people go this way? Well, becoming a son of Issachar can at times be pretty lonesome. Who's that guy? Is he ranting about something again? Is he going off about something again? Here's what Solomon says about this. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 13 through 18. This wisdom have I seen also under the sun. And it seemed great unto me. Mark that. Solomon says, I've seen this wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. This seems like a big deal point. This is a big deal. It seemed great to me. There was a little city and few men within it. And there came a great king against it and besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. That man was a uh, son of Issachar. That, That man understood. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of wise men are heard in quiet, more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. So in David's time, this poor, this poor wise man, in David's time, such men were recognized and heeded. David honored the sons of Issachar. There were just 200 of them. They were not much. But David honored them. They were marked. They, they were listened to. So these men were recognized and heeded. And David's son Solomon recognized how easy it is to neglect, overlook, or forget such men after the fact. In other words, 
God, have you ever noticed when you're reading through Judges uh, that the people fall away from the Lord, they turn to idols, they get into big trouble, they cry out to the Lord, the Lord raises up a judge, delivers them, you turn the page, and they're back to the idols. And then you turn the page again, and then they're back at it again. It's like cycles through. And you think, man, what, what's, what's wrong with these people? It, it doesn't occur to us that one page turn in the book of Judges is the, the uh, same amount of time as the entire history of our country. Right? 200 years, another 200 years. So how long, did it, how long did it take us to fall off the cliff? How long did it take us to forget So what happens is the poor wise man uh, offers a plan and it delivers the city 30 years ago. But how how hard is it to get a a young person to roll their eyes? That was 30 years ago. Bring out out another history book. I don't don't have time for this. We have have short-term memories. And because we have short-term memories, we keep doing the same thing. This is why we forget the poor wise man. So... The poor, the poor man may deliver the city, but 30 years later, when the next poor man or that poor man's grandson is trying to sound a warning, guys, we've been here before. This has all happened before. This is what we do. <laughs> this, is our, this is our folly. This is our shame. This is how God delivered us last time. Everybody says, oh, get serious. That won't work. He may deliver the city. 30 years later, his grandson is trying to help out, and everyone is sneering at him. Everyone's forgotten what happened before. But here's the thing. It still doesn't matter. It still doesn't matter, Solomon says. Wisdom is still better than weapons of war. The wisdom is still good. The wisdom is still better. Wisdom is still better than strength, Solomon says. The city is still delivered. The city is still delivered. And so we should always remember the wisdom of Ronald Reagan's desk plaque. Quote, there's no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. There's no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. This poor wise man, we don't know his name. We don't know the names of the sons of Iskar. We just know that they were there. And we also know that we live in a time when we need sons of Issachar. Now, of course... We are not the chosen nation. We are not the chosen nation the way Israel was. But we are a nation that has fallen steeply away from the faith that we once professed. We were a Christian nation, and no mistake. All right, There's no ambiguity about it. The charters of the original colonies were all explicitly Christian. The Mayflower, Mayflower Compact was explicitly Christian. The fundamental orders of Connecticut were explicitly Christian. When the, when the federal constitution was adopted and the First Amendment was adopted, nine of the 13 colonies had official relationships with uh, uh, Christian churches. Nine of the 13 colonies had, had established a relationship with a Christian church at the state level. The reason they didn't do it at the federal level is they didn't want to bring the states into conflict over religious issues. Connecticut uh, had a relationship, with, had an established relationship with the Congregational Church, which lasted down to 1830. Um, so the, nine of the 13 were in that position. So they didn't want a Church of the United States like you have a Church of Denmark or a Church of England. They didn't want a church at the federal level. They didn't want Congress to do it because the states were 
the states were doing it. And so consequently, when you look, and we were simply flat out a Christian nation. And we were a Christian nation with a federal system of government, so we had it all arranged and worked out. And then we fell away. And that arrangement, that Christian consensus, lasted down into the 20th century. Right, that Christian consensus lasted for a long time. Don't tell us that it, don't tell us that that it's impossible to do. We did it for two centuries, and then we forgot. Right? The problem is not that we never did it. The problem is that we forgot that we did it. Why? Because we didn't tell our sons and daughters. Because we let the secularists teach our sons and daughters. We we have forgotten just like the Israelites did. It's been a true cultural apostasy. We are, we are not a pagan nation. We are an apostate nation. We are not a pagan nation. We are apostate. We are backslidden. It's been a true cultural apostasy. In 1892, there was a Supreme Court decision that determined that we were, in fact, a Christian nation. That Supreme Court decision, which you can look up and read online, is Holy Trinity versus the United States, which is a wonderful name for such a court case. <laughs> Holy Trinity versus the United States. And in this, um, the, it was a convoluted situation where they were dealing with uh, a church, Holy Trinity, had called a British minister to serve them, and there was a law that said uh, an employer couldn't pay the passage of someone that they were employing, and the church had paid the passage of this British minister, and the Supreme Court handled that uh, with common sense and wisdom tied it all up, and then the Supreme Court said, in the majority opinion, and thank you for bringing this whole issue up, we want to tell you about how the United States is a Christian nation. It's ridiculous to try to ban a Christian minister from serving in a Christian church in a Christian country. That's just ridiculous. And then they went through all some of the things that I mentioned, the fundamental orders of Connecticut and the original colonial charters and all of They went through the whole history and said, it's just indisputable that we're a Christian nation. We were not a denominational nation. We were not a Presbyterian nation. We were not a Baptist nation. We were not a Methodist nation. We were not an Episcopal nation, but we were, in fact, a Christian nation. This is what Francis Schaeffer was referring to when he talked about the the need for a Christian consensus among the people. So, in that decision in 1892, which was just, what, 61 years before I was born. 61 years is not a long time. I'm older than 61 now, right? 61 years is not a long time. This decision was 61 years before I was born. And despite that decision, 1893 was not a dystopic, hellish year with a time when Ayatollahs were ruining everything. That's not, people are lying to you. The devil is a liar, and he's good at it. So, under this heading, I'm not claiming that we are the Israel of God. Right? Every, the Great Commission says that we're to disciple every nation, not just America. Every nation. I'm, we're not talking about any chosen people nonsense. But every nation has an obligation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Every nation has an obligation to receive baptism. Every nation has an obligation to learn how to obey Jesus Christ. So, within this construct, within this setting... What should we as believers within this Israel, not every Israel, but within this Israel, what should we do? There are five things that I would set before you. 
things that you can do. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11, verse 3. When the foundations are destroyed, what can you do? I want to suggest five things that you can do. Number one, worship God. Number one, worship God. Our culture is in the state it is in because of all the true worship rendered to false gods and all the false worship rendered to the true God. That's our problem. We render worship to Molech and to Baal and to Mammon and to all these other false... We render worship to false gods, and it's true worship that we render to false gods. And then we gather uh, in churches all across the country, millions of us, we gather in churches in order to conduct worship services that, that resemble more like a junior high pep rally than anything else. That's not, that's not worshiping God. We want to find out what the Word of God requires of us in worship and then do that. And when we do... When we do that, when we gather, you're gathering to do, today, right this minute, you are doing right now the most important thing that you do in your life. There is no more important thing than this. Worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day every week. You come with your family, you present yourself before the Most High, and you worship Him. And you worship Him in order to be conformed to His image. Here's a fundamental principle, and this is what lies behind our apostasy. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. In Psalm 115, it says the idolaters have fashioned these idols that have eyes and they see not, ears and they hear not, noses and they smell not. And then it says in Psalm 115, those that make them are like unto them. You become like what you worship. If you worship deaf, dumb, and blind idols, you are going to be deaf, dumb, and blind. If you worship the God of life and light, you're going to grow up into life and light. We, with unveiled face, behold the majesty of God. We are being conformed from one degree of glory to another, Paul says in Corinthians. That's wh- wh- why is that happening? What's the mechanism? The mechanism is worshiping God. When Jesus appears, we're going to become like him, it says, because we're going to see him as he is. And so when you come weekly to see God as he is, to see God in his glory, as he's revealed in his word, as he communicates his blessing to you through word and sacrament, you're beholding your God, and as you behold your God, you're you're becoming more and more like him. And you're becoming more and more like him on an individual level, and you're becoming more and more like him corporately. So, the most important thing we can do is worship God. The most important thing we can do is worship God and be studying the scriptures to find out how he would be worshipped. We don't want to treat worship as though we're trying to appeal to consumers out there. It's not a seeker-sensitive sort of thing. We want to worship God, and we want to find out what he wants us to do when we come before him in worship. So, worship of the Most High God is the most important thing that any of us can do. That's the most important, number one. Number two, tie family ties tighter. Tie your family ties tighter. Love your wife. Respect your husband. Educate your children in the Lord. Be done with porn. G.K. Chesterton once said that pornography, well, he said that free love is the first and most obvious bribe that can be offered to a slave. That's, That's what's happening. Porn, uh, porn is simply a morphine drip for slaves. That's what it is. So be done with porn. Sit down at your dinner table together as often as you can, every night if you can. Confess your familial sins, especially anger and bitterness. In Luke 1.17, uh, 
uh, it refers to Malachi. What, what's this movement of the Spirit going to do? It's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Confess your anger and bitterness, your carping criticism. Sing. Read stories in your family where the bad guys are defeated. Read stories in your home where the bad guys are defeated. And the very best ones are when they are defeated at the last minute. That's the way to go. That's, that's the kind of story God loves. God loves cliffhangers. You say, I don't love cliffhangers. <laughs> I, I, but think about it. Abraham is on the mountain, knife in the air, and then God intervenes. And then it became a proverb. On the mount of the Lord, it, w- it will be provided. God believes in just-in-time delivery. That's, what, and so that's one of the reasons we want to worship him, so that we become like him, so that we understand his M.O. We understand how he approaches these things. He loves to deliver at the last minute. Moses is standing there on the banks of the Red Sea with his stick and a million and a half people and an army coming after him. And a lot of Israelites are looking at Moses saying, was this really your best idea? <laughs> was this really? What, what does God do? God, del- God loves to deliver when you're on the banks of the Red Sea and an army behind you. That's how God does it. So the best stories are the ones where the deliverance comes at the last minute. Tie family, ties tighter. Sing together, pray together, eat together, work together. Confess your sins to one another. Tie family, ties tighter. Number three, read books that orient you. Read books that orient you. You may be distressed because you don't think that you're among the sons of Issachar. Well, but nothing prevents you from reading books that the sons of Issachar write. Right? You may not be able to write them, but you can read them. Right, listen to if you can't be a son of Issachar, at least listen to the sons of Issachar, at least pay attention to the sons of Issachar. As a starter pack, try Strange New World by Carl Truman, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresson Machen, Idols for Destruction by Herbert Schlossberg, Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy, and The God of Sex by Peter Jones. That's a starter pack. Start reading them. Start listening to them. Don't backhand them. Don't dismiss them. When someone stands up and says, you know, they're doing it again. I think think we're at a time when rank-and-file Christians are now prepared to listen to the poor wise man in ways that we weren't prepared 20 years ago. Because we've seen the disintegration starting to accelerate. So if you can't be a son of Issachar, at least listen to them. Number four. Review and refurbish your doctrinal commitments. Review and refurbish your doctrinal commitments. I would begin with your postmillennialism, then move on to the doctrine of the covenant, and then on to Calvinism. I know we have visitors here this morning, and and you say post what, <laughs> you know, post what the covenant what what well you're, you're among Presbyterians who believe in covenant peanut butter and covenant jelly. Every, <laughs> everything everything is covenantal. Um, post-millennialism, optimistic eschatology, covenant thinking and living, and Calvinism. God is God. God knows what he's doing. He is in control. Our secular lords are not lords at all. Our secular lords are not in control the way they think they are. So get these truths and the biblical basis for them down into your bones. Our cause is desperate, but we will win nonetheless. Chesterton again said, Christianity has died many times. Christianity has died many times, but that's all right because we serve a God who knows the way 
out of the grave. That's his method. That's what he does. That's how he operates. So trust him. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. Our God is almighty God. And then last, muster your courage. Muster your courage. In Proverbs 28.1, it says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. That's what we want. The righteous are bold as a lion. We shouldn't be timid. We shouldn't be cowering. We shouldn't be in retreat. The righteous are bold as a lion. The church lockdowns and the masking orders and such were simply a beta test, seeking to find out how soft the church was. And the answer is pretty soft. That's what the answer was. All right? Pretty soft. Strip clubs were essential services. Pot shops were essential services. Abortion clinics were essential services. But churches, no, no, no. That's And then how many... How many Christians, how many Christian pastors, how many Christian elders said, oh, whatever, whatever Masses says? Romans 13, they said, turning Romans 13 upside down. The established authorities are God's deacon, God's servant. They're supposed to reward the righteous and punish the wrongdoer, not the opposite. They're not supposed to honor the wrongdoer and punish the righteous. So, you need to be, you need to be prepared. For the time when the church at large is ordered to meet just once a month in order to help fight climate change. We need to reduce the car, we need to reduce your ecclesiastical carbon footprint. <laughs> Never forget that you are the carbon they want to reduce. <laughs> right? Their motto is way too much of you, just the right amount of me. You are the carbon they want to reduce. And you need to know beforehand that you belong to a church that will not comply. That's where we're headed. The righteous are bold as a lion. But you can't be bold as a lion without the infrastructure of being bold as a lion. And that infrastructure is doctrinal. It is grounded in the worship of God. It's grounded in faithful attendance on a sacrament and listening to his word. It's based on something. Obedience is given to us. Obedience is assigned to us and then given to us by God. And the results are God's. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.